0: But this morning, I want to uh, talk a little bit about the message I've entitled Blotted Out. Blotted Out, you'll find out why here in just a moment. Uh, we're, uh, our anchor passage is in Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, and it says, He blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us and contrary to us, and he took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross and having disarmed authorities and powers he made a show of them openly triumphing over them by the cross now we live in a paperless society right everything we try to do without paper everything's becoming more and more digital i opened uh, or we went and opened an account for my daughter at the bank uh, a couple of weeks ago i didn't sign one piece of paper like the whole time, it was all on this little electronic pad, and that was it. And so I'm I'm okay with that, uh, except for this morning when my iPad crashed and I and it didn't work out. But so today I have just we went back to paper this morning just to, just to make sure. But uh, I'm okay with that. Uh, it's, it's convenient. It's it's easy. You know, it wasn't always like that. When I was younger, everything was paper. When I had to turn in an essay or a report, it was on an 8 by 11 sheet of white paper, right? And, and some of you students now may be familiar with that part of it, but where did your paper come from most likely? From a printer that was probably hooked to a computer. So you got it all good and ready before you pushed that button, and it slid out, and everything was, was good and ready to go but when I was younger there was this thing that I used called a typewriter and so if you're not familiar with a typewriter I'll break it down for you real quick there's a little ribbon soaked in ink and there's these little metal arms with a letter imprinted on it and you push the button with the letter on it and it swings up and hits that paper and makes the mark on that white paper right it's loud it's violent (laughs) and <laughs> it sounds like there's a woodpecker in your dining room if you 're a good typist. I never was a really good typist um, but uh but that 's what it sounded like some Some were fortunate in my time to have a word processor, and you know you had the little green screen you could type the letters on and then push the button, but it would still type but just like pop. It was just loud and, and and crazy, right so once the dust settled though. We still had this nice paper that we could turn in, but besides the violence and the noise of that typewriter or word processor, um, they all had a significant flaw. Once that letter, word, sentence was printed on that paper, it was a done deal, There was no going back. There was no erasing it. If you tried to do that, it just made a bigger mess. Uh, Some people were disturbingly skilled enough to, like, white it out, line it up just right, and it was almost unnoticeable. Uh, But this generation probably hasn't had to deal with that very much. In my case, though... I had a pretty nice typewriter, right? It came in a fancy leather suitcase. It weighed about 300 pounds. And you had to get somebody to help you lift it up onto the table. Um, You got it set up. You plugged it in. And it hummed like it was ready to go, right? But it, you know, I was able to produce some pretty nice papers, some pretty nice uh, essays. But my typewriter in particular had a little something special, Instead of just the ink ribbon, it had what we called correctional tape in it. And so it's basically the same thing as the ink ribbon, except for it's white. And you could hold the button down, retype what you messed up on, and that same violent would go up there, but it would put white on the paper and kind of make it uh, look like it had it had blotted out, right? It was blotted out, allowing uh, you to correct your mistakes and make it look like that it, it never happened. It took that permanent record off of that paper that you're working on. And what Paul is telling us in this, in this uh, verse here in Colossians 2, it's a very similar concept. In our case, the cross is the correctional tape. The cross is the acting force that rights the wrongs being imposed upon us. Only in this scenario, the cross doesn't stop at covering up the letters, but continues with preventative measures, ultimately with complete and perfect correction, like the mistake had never been made in the first place. And so today I want to look at primarily two opposing forces that come against us, but are no matter. Match for the redemptive work of Christ on the cross. The first one is the law, and the second are the unseen forces of spiritual warfare, the authorities and powers, or principalities and powers, as it's named in some translations, both working against us, but both conquered by Christ. So we'll start with the law. Uh, Before we understand what the cross did, we need to understand what the spiritual landscape was before Christ. So I'm sure you've been involved, especially if you're in church or grew up in church, you've been involved in some sort of conversation or heard a conversation at some point about what does the law mean to us as modern day Christians? How does it apply all these? You know, we read these kind of to us, they're odd uh, laws in the Old Testament, odd things that we're being instructed to do. How does that apply? Apply to us in modern day, as a modern day Christian. When it says here, Paul says the handwriting of ordinances, that's what he's referring to is the Old Testament law. But many modern teachers, uh, they want to say that we need to unhitch, is the word they typically use, unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. Because they say, well, the Old Testament's just the book of archaic laws, rules, that don't really necessarily apply to us. All we really need to know is about the Jesus of the New Testament. That's what they're trying to tell us. But the problem with that is without the Old Testament, we really can't know the Jesus of the New Testament. Uh, The problem with that is uh, without the Old Testament law, we can't really understand what sin is. And without understanding the old covenant, we can't really understand the new covenant or why we need it or much less the power it holds. Now, 1 Corinthians 15, 56 says, the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. If we connect the dots, law is, leads to death. By itself, the law really doesn't have much meaning. It's not good or bad. But when it's connected with the sin and that sin factor, death is the only possible outcome. The law exposes our sin. The law points a stern finger at our failures. The law constantly reminds us that we don't add up And really never will. Paul refers to the law as a schoolmaster or a tutor, a very harsh one to be exact. Think of like a reform school or like a school for delinquents, right? In Galatians chapter 3, verses 23, it says, But before faith came, we were imprisoned under the law kept for the faith which was later to be revealed so the law was our tutor or schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith as as sinful beings we are constantly at odds with the law. We are the opposite of the teacher's pet, right? We're the all-day, everyday troublemakers. We are constantly in like the naughty corner, right? That's, that's how we, our sin nature makes it so. Romans 6.14 says, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Paul again makes this connection between sin and And the law. He goes on to say in verse 16 Do you not know that to whom you yield yourselves as slaves to obey, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? Sin is a harsh master. Those that are subscribed to it literally are slaves. Any kind of visual representation that we've seen of slavery in any culture, uh, by reading about it or seeing it on TV or in a movie, the worst parts that you can see on there do not compare to the bondage that comes with sin. The bondage that comes with that the law points out to us. If you consider the power of the law outside of Christ, not only physically but spiritually, the law is not forgiving, the law's not merciful, the law is really not pleasant in any way. This bondage is so harsh that if we try to agree with it to the letter, it brings nothing but a guaranteed death sentence. Romans 6.23, the first part of that verse says, For the wages of sin is death. It's what I'm due. It's what I've owed. If I've worked a job and I deserve wages, that's what I'm getting because of what I've done. It's not unfair. It's actually quite just. The wages of sin is death. But there's good news. If we go to 1 Corinthians 15.57, it says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.25 says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor or a schoolmaster. Romans 6.23, the second part of that that verse says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Through Jesus' work on the cross, we have victory over death. We are no longer under that harsh schoolmaster. We have eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But how, how did he do that? If we go back to our anchor text, uh, verse 14, it says, he blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us and contrary to us, and he took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. He nailed it to the cross. I don't want you to miss that visualization there because in in ancient times in Bible times it was common practice that when someone had a debt that they owed but it had been canceled and they had or they had paid that debt some they would take a notice and hang it up in a public place they'd nail it on the wall so everyone could see that that creditor no longer had any claim over that debtor. That's what happened on the cross. The cross put the law, sin, and death all on notice. They no longer have a claim on us. He has purchased us. We are his forever. Now, Paul doesn't stop here when explaining what the work of the cross did. As if eternal eternal life and payment for sin dead, and freedom from the bondage of sin wasn't enough, Paul says, but wait, there's more. Let's talk about these principalities and powers or authorities and powers. Our salvation is not for the sole purpose of going to heaven. That is an amazing benefit of being redeemed by the blood of Christ. But if that were it, if that were the only reason we were saved, as soon as we accepted Christ, we'd be gone, right? Straight up if that were the sole reason for salvation, we are tasked with, stay, with staying in this foreign land, showing others the love of Christ, living an abundant life as Christ instructed us to do specifically, and we, but we do not live without opposition. We live in a sin-stained, sinful world, and we must deal with that mess on a daily basis until we go home. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 says, For our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers, the darkness of this world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our enemies are not the people that oppose our viewpoints. They're not the people that don't believe in God. They're not the people that we think have a liberal agenda or whatever reason we don't get along with those. Those people are not our enemies. They're just like us. We've found Christ. Right? The enemy is to go deeper than that. Our enemy goes much deeper than the surface. But make mo- no mistake, our enemy is powerful and is not to be underestimated. But here's the even better news. Our God is infinitely more powerful than anything that could come against us. Paul uses a similar description to these unseen forces in our text today. And he goes on to list three things that the cross does to these forces. The cross disarms them, defames them, and defeats them. We're going to talk about those today. We'll talk about disarmed first. The cross took away the power of any weapon that the devil or his forces could fashion against us. He ultimately rendered them useless. However, that doesn't stop him from trying. We look at First Peter five eight that says, "Be sober and watchful, because your adversary, the devil, walks around as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour." Ephesians six sixteen and above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish the fiery arrows of the evil one. He's still coming at us. But the devil knows his fate. God told him from the beginning in the garden in Genesis 3, 15, when he told the serpent, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He knows. But Satan is going to do everything in the meantime to try to make a stumble, to try to lead others away from Christ, and to try to have us share in his misery, in that misery of sin. That's his nature. But that's really of no consequence to the work on the cross. Now, a lot of times when I read in scripture, I I play, like I have this movie that I play in my head that I'm I'm the director of. It's kind of like visualize what's happening in scripture. Uh, Sometimes I thank the academy for the great job that I did of putting it together. Other times it doesn't work out as well. But in this particular scene, uh, based off our text from today, I, I see this as I've casted a crazed lunatic chasing after me, and I have death or, or pain at every, every turn, every doorway, at every moment. There's, uh, you know, one slash of the blade, one pull of the trigger, and that's, and that's all that she wrote for me. But the hero in this story does something unexpected. He replaces that razor-sharp blade with a feather Right? He replaces that, that hot slug to the chest with a squirt gun. You know, Satan and his army can come at me as hard as they want, but the works of the cross have disarmed them. It's made them of no consequence. Their, well, their weapons are useless with the weapons that God has given us through the cross. At most, of their weapons are annoying, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God, to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Isaiah 54, 17 says, No weapon, No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, says the Lord. All of that is disarmed in the cross. Next, it is defamed. If there's one thing that the devil uses to his advantage in our society through social media, through our culture, it's fame. Who doesn't want to feel important? Popular, powerful, it gives us the illusion of intelligence, love, of control, of being a god, essentially. And was this not the promise from the beginning? When Satan, the serpent, talked to Eve, said, now, look, you know, God doesn't really know what he's talking about. If you do this, you're going to be like God. You're going to be made like God. It's the same aspiration that got him kicked out of heaven in the first place. And he's trying to get everyone else on board. A good example in Romans chapter 1. Paul speaking, it says, Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him or give thanks to him as God, but became futile in their imaginations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, Birds, four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to uncleanliness through the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their own bodies among themselves. They turned the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. But what the cross did is it took all of Satan's schemes and put them to shame, made them look foolish. The cross took what many had begun to worship and had made their God, and he turned it into a spectacle, made a show of it openly. The cross deserves our recognition. Jesus is due all of the fame. Now, we live in a society of rewards. Uh, if I do enough good, I'll get that good back to me, returned to me, Right? Well, that's called karma, and that's not a biblical principle, yet many of us still live by that premise. If we work hard enough, we can make something of ourselves, right? We can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. That sounds like the American dream, Another principle that's not necessarily biblical any performance based salvation, like saying enough, doing enough, or being enough, could save us from eternal separation from our Creator. None of that is valid. The work on the cross that Christ did shows us just how ridiculous. That notion is in the first place. And Paul actually gives us a bit of irony in 1 Corinthians when he says in chapter 1, For to those who are perishing, the preaching of the cross is foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He goes further in in verse twenty one. Says, for since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. For the Jews required a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, we preach Christ as the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God. Is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. As Christians, we should work hard to make much of our Savior, not work hard to make much of ourselves. The cross reminds us of this. If you look in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 19 it says for the law made nothing perfect. All these rules, all these actions, all these things that we can follow, these things that we can do good for the law made nothing perfect but now a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. In Colossians 2 verse 17 it says these being the laws and the rules and the, and the rituals are shadows of things to come but the substance the substance belongs to Christ. Satan wants to convince us that we have a chance. That if we try hard enough, that if we do good enough, that if we get smart enough, that if we hold our mouth just right, we can do this all on our own. We don't really need Christ. Or if we do need Christ, we don't fully need him. We just like need to partner with him. Even Jesus needs a little help every now and then. Right, that's what we're told by this world. I was listening to an interview from a celebrity, and I won't name that celebrity's name, but they had uh, recently professed openly to becoming a Christian, and uh, they they said how fortunate God was to have their platform for them to share God with with the world. How lucky God is to have me. How arrogant could you be? Now, I'm not questioning their relationship with Christ. That's between them and God. That's not my place to question. But what I am saying, if that's how I feel, if that's how you feel, that somewhere along the way, there's a big misunderstanding about who God is and who you are in relation to God, right? God does not need us to make him famous, The fame that he has was all displayed as Jesus hung on the cross. John chapter 12, verse 32 says, If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. He doesn't need our help. To become famous at the cross, any who thought they could do the job, any who thought they could pay the price, any who thought they could somehow fulfill that requirement, our text says, he made a show of them openly. Any fame they thought they had or deserved completely disappeared at the cross. Lastly, the cross defeated Lastly, our text says the cross triumphed over them. These principalities or authorities and powers represent everything in opposition to the work of the cross. Satan, his army, sin, death, all are walking in one accord to derail our faith. The journey will be difficult. Make no mistake, you must realize that we are traveling as foreigners. We are traveling as foreigners, sojourners, and the locals are not our allies. We are traveling through hostile territory, but the good news is once we're on that train, there is nothing that can stop it from reaching its destination." Romans 8, 38 and 39, one of my favorite passages, says, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, neither angels nor principalities and powers, neither things present nor things to come, neither height nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That about covers it all, right? Anything that's coming against us or coming against the cross is going to fall into one of those categories. Shall, be, shall not be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ our Lord. The power running that engine is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the redemptive work that he did on the cross. If we look at Romans 1.16, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek Now, through the cross, death itself was defeated. If we look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting with verse 24, it says, Then comes the end when he will deliver up the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule of authority and power. There's that phrase again. For he will reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is revealed that he who has put all things under him is the exception. When all things are subject to him, then the son himself will also be subject to him and put all things under him and that God may be all in all. Through the cross, Satan Himself is defeated. Let's fast forward a little bit into Revelation chapter 20. It says, When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be set free from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog to gather them for a battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They traveled the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. So he's gathered all of these forces, all more than we can imagine. But here's what happens. But Fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Done. Devoured. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. The world may throw a lot of things at us, it may seem unbearable at times, but praise be to God, by the cross we have overcome. 1 John chapter 4, starting with verse, excuse me, chapter 5, starting with verse 4, says, For whoever is born of God overcomes the world, and the victory that overcomes the world is our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? We have complete and total victory in the cross. Christ not only washed away our sins completely, no longer holding them to our account, but he completely demolished anything or anyone that would war against us. All that mean us eternal harm are demolished. The cross not only won every single battle, but the cross won the war. And not by a little, but by a landslide. If we look at back at our anchor text in Colossians chapter 2, it says, He blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us and contrary to us and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed authorities and powers, He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them by the cross. Romans 8:31 says, "What then shall we say to these things, if God be for us, who can be against us?" So if you ever wondered, is, is God truly for me? Does God really love me? Then why is this life so hard? <laughs> why do I struggle so much? <laughs> Why is it hard to get up some mornings? Why does my family die? Why why do things hurt? If God's for us, why do these things happen? If you want the answer to that, you lift up your eyes and you look at the cross. That is the answer for everything. Look to the cross. Let's pray.